Well, it's good to have you here tonight back for the second week as we move through this topic, which, by the way, may be the most challenging division of theology that we actually teach. And I say that because if I'm teaching on angelology or I'm teaching on pneumatology, you know, there's a lot of people out there, if you ask them, you know, what are your views on the Holy Spirit, go to the mall and ask that, and most people, I don't have one, you know. Some people will, of course. Others won't. Even God, you know, that's a controversial topic, and yet we still have pockets of people that are agnostic and atheists, and so, you know, they don't want to get into debating what they think about God because they don't believe in God or God's not knowable. But there are no a-anthropists out there. There's nobody that doesn't believe in people. Everyone believes in humanity, and everyone's got an opinion on humanity. And because the church is supposed to be this buttress and, and, and pillar, this, this upholding structure for the truth in society... And the big part of holding to the truth is really fighting false ideas that raise themselves up against God and the truth. It's perhaps the hardest for us to settle in on a biblical, a rightly theological, orthodox view of humanity. That may be one of the most hardest things because we're fighting a, a whole wave of opinion about humanity. So this is hard and, and this is difficult. So we want to look at these topics as we go through them one by one. Last week was controversial enough with creation and evolution, but today we're going to deal with some things that are equally as difficult and things that we need to say, this is the truth, this is God's word, if in fact it is, and you can look as a good Berean and see that this is what the Bible teaches, and then we need to hold to it regardless, even if the entirety of our culture says we don't believe that that's not true. Implications perhaps, some of the application we can debate, but the statements and assertions of scripture we've got to hold to. So this is an important time, perhaps one of the most challenging sections of theology that we've dealt with. We only have one more to go, which will be next year, uh, and then we'll see what we do. We've been a lot of talk about what we're going to do after that, but we'll hold that for another time. Why don't you take your Bibles and pull up Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, and as I prayed, we're going to look at some very important things as it relates to the wording of what the Bible says and consider some of the implications of what these words mean as we think through who we are as human beings. Genesis chapter 1, we dealt with, really in essence last week, the first 25 verses, but let's look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in it, in its fruit. And you shall have for them for food, you'll have them for food, every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I want to deal with this, number one on your outline. We want to talk about what it means that human beings are described as being created in God's image, God's image. That's a big topic and a debated one, and we want to get into that. But I want to begin, before we ever define it, to at least understand that whatever it means, 
You can see the, the number of these nouns going from singular to plural throughout all of this, speaking in terms of us, talking about us being created in the image of God. If you look again at verse number 27, it says God created man. It doesn't say men, he says man. This word that encompasses the totality of human, humanity at this point in his own image. But he makes very clearly here, and he'll get into more detail in chapter 2 about the creation of woman. But he says, in the image of God, he created him, man, mankind. Male and female, he created them. I just want to begin with an observation that we can get in our minds and then we can move on to more clear definitions about the image of God. I want to start by thinking about what it means that God made man in his image, singular nouns, and then male and female, he created them. Now, of course, I won't get into all the debate and we could go off on a bunny trail regarding the recent debates regarding gender and God. God is always presented with gender. He's always presented in the masculine pronouns. He's always presented that way as a masculine deity, but we need to recognize that the creation of mankind, the creation of humanity, male and female, are both created with this designation of the image of God. Passage just to jot down, I'll have it up on the screen, First Peter chapter 3. Here's a New Testament way to describe this with some different words. Verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, sensitivity, with knowledge, literally. Know, know her, know the distinctions, know her, and he's going to describe some things. Showing honor to her, to the woman, as to the weaker vessel. It doesn't have to necessarily do with bench pressing, although I would hope your husband can out bench press you. But the idea here is with the, the, the constitution of the female, and that's something that is for another time discussed throughout the scripture. The distinction in gender is not a statement of worth because that goes on to speak to her being, the wife being, to these men, speaking in the pool to the men, they are, the, the wives are heirs with you. They're fellow heirs. They're co-heirs with you to the grace of life. That, that's a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. Male, female, distinct, right? Even the word gender. Now, we taught this on Tuesday night to our guys. We're doing some uh, Bible study talking about genres. The genre, the word genre, is French word, comes into English gender. And it just means it, they may be the same category, but there are different types within the category. You go into the bookstore and you have genres there, fiction and nonfiction. And you have, you know, self-help and whatever, romance, history, biographies. Those are, they're all books. They're all in the same category as books. They're all going to be labeled as a purchase of a book, but they're different types. And so God in his creativity creates humanity, male and female, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And it's a threat here actually to men that if you don't understand her worth as being made in the image of God, a fellow heir of the grace of life, then God's not going to be interested in answering your prayers. To go further here, and we'll deal with this when we deal a little bit with racism and we'll talk about worth and image of God and all those kinds of things later in our lecture series, not tonight. But Galatians chapter 3, speaking of people that are saved, as you know in the book of Revelation, there will be people from every nation, every language, every tribe. And it says, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. Now that's important, speaking of the gender debates and translations. One of the problems with taking a lot of the words from their cultural context as it relates to what they were describing, concepts like being an heir. The heir was the son in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And who gets that inheritance? Now, all people within the church by faith in Christ are heirs. They're all sons of God. But then he makes clear, as many of you who were baptized, placed into Christ and have put on Christ, that idea of being clothed in, in Christ's righteousness, there's neither Jew nor Greek. 
doesn't matter if you were part of the covenant people before the coming of Christ or you were alienated and, and outside those covenant promises. Uh, there's neither slave nor free. doesn't matter if you are at the lower end of the economic ladder or the top end. There's no male. There's no female. But you are all one, all heirs, all sons, all the privileged who get the inheritance that's been earned for you in Christ. All are one in Christ Jesus. I would hope to our congregation at least... I don't know about those who may listen to this later, but for those here, I hope we wouldn't need a lot as it relates to the kind of egalitarianism in terms of worth and also understanding the complementarianism regarding roles. That's a whole other sermon. We preached on those things throughout the years. Look them up. But we need to make sure that we recognize that regardless of how the fall is described later, regardless of what goes on throughout cultures, ebbs and the ebb and flow of, of cultural distinctions, we've got to realize that when it comes to worth and dignity and the image of God, this is something even prior to redemption, is all under the same heading, all under the same definition. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I want you to recognize when we talk about Galatians chapter 3, the privilege of being one in Christ is one that Hebrews points out even the angels cannot claim. When you look throughout the Bible at the amazing value that's placed on angelic beings and the amazing capacities and powers and responsibility. Here you could make the case they are made in God's image, though never expressly stated that way in the scripture. When it comes to the distinction between beings created in the image of God, those that are human are, there's no distinction among them. Rich, poor, ethnicity here, ethnicity there, male, female, they're all made in the image of God. I want to be sure and say that without a lot of comment. Important place to start. Human creation. Let's talk about, before we even define it further, let's talk at least about the fact, even as I said regarding angels, there's no other statement in Scripture regarding any other creation of God that falls under this rubric, this heading, this umbrella, that you are in God's image. Can't be said of any, anything else. God's image is, said, uh, you know, is not said of any other. And today, and to speak somewhat contextually to my culture, I, I think at least for now, it'd be good to bring up the topic of animals because we live in a unique age, whereas uh, most of us buy our food from the grocery store and we don't raise our animals to eat them or to clothe us. Our connection with animals is domesticated animals for our own comfort and pleasure. And so animals take on this whole uh, different mindset uh, in the minds of, of modern Americans uh, than in most times past. I get this question often, and you know, many of you know, I host that national call-in show on Tuesdays, and even this week, again, and probably once a month, we get a question uh, about animals. Animals clearly in the scripture are not stated as being made in the image of God. There's a chasm of distinction between every other creation. Clearly, men and women are the pinnacle of God's creation. And you could even claim, if we went back into the first point, that even women are the pinnacle of the pinnacle of God's creation, as it's spelled out in the narrative. But don't let that go to your head, uh, ladies. But the idea here is that everything is escalating up to the creation of mankind, and the distinction is being said as this creation is in the image of God and everything else is, is not. Animals are distinct from most creation because there's something about them, as we'll see later in our lecture, that is parallel to mankind in having a soul, having some immaterial part to them. More on that later. But we need to recognize, as high as they are in the creative order, there is a clear line of demarcation between every 
animal that God has ever made and mankind in Genesis. There are some interesting things to note, I suppose, about eschatology because everyone asks about what is the future for animals. And then as I, my co-host said this week, I was a bit surprised with his answer. I don't know if he doesn't like animals, not that I'm a big animal lover, as most of you know, but he was pretty emphatic in his view on animals in eternity. Well, I can't speak to that specifically because Revelation chapter 21 and 22 doesn't speak to that issue because that's the eternal state. But I can tell you that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, the descriptions, and this is just one example, but this I give you because you know it, very common one, talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, natural enemies, natural hostility, no longer. The leopard laying down with the young goat, and that used to be lunch, and now, I don't know, they're friends. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And you know, the rest of this context, the lion with the lamb, you got the kid playing with the cobra, that there's no hostilities here, but the distinctions between men and animals are still there. But in the kingdom, in the time of blessing, when Satan is bound, we still have descriptions of of animals. And, And that's something I suppose that would be parallel just in looking at the Genesis account. God creates a paradise, if you will, for man, men and women, people made in his image, and, and, and fills that with food and fills that with the experience of having, you know, rivers and trees and animals. It was a part of God's ideal creation that he looked back on and said, it is good. So in the kingdom, we'll have animals. But the question is always, well, will they be the animals that Is it going to be fluffy that I spent 10 years with in Orange County? We'll touch on that with a little more detail later, but the answer is no. The answer is no because of the distinction in what it is that becomes in God's plan for us in terms of redemption to live beyond our own biological life on earth. And and so that's not the case. And yet, if you have that view, which I think is the biblical view, some people say, well, then you're just, you're animal haters. Well, uh, clearly I'm not. I am even open to the idea of animals in the eternal state. I know they're in the millennial kingdom. And I also know the scripture says that those that are cruel to animals, I mean, that's in the category of, of, of sin and transgression. I think of this proverb we read not long ago in our daily Bible reading, the whoever's righteous has regard for the life of his beast. He cares about Animals. Now, he's not a member of whatever that horrible commercial that comes on for three or five minutes. What is it called? I, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Pete is one of them. But anyway, uh, I'm not saying that. See, and I don't want to reveal too much of my own thoughts on any of this, but I'm trying to teach the Bible here. And the reality is that those who are cruel to animals here are described as, as the wicked. I, I once had a um, seminary colleague that um, wrote on this topic from a conservative evangelical perspective and there's enough in the bible at least to say that you know we can never get to the place of being completely uh uh, passive in terms of our attitude toward animals they are up on the higher echelon of god's creative work but they are certainly not in the image of god as we'll see so distinction number one is not no distinction at all god makes men and women in his image and they are equally in his image has nothing to do uh, with their distinction and gender that one is higher in terms of the center of God's image than the other. And when it comes to animals, they are excluded from that definition or anything else in the created narrative, creative narrative of, of Genesis 1. So let's get more specific here when we think this through. Here's the phrase. And, and, and the immediate point of departure for people in debating and controversy is that this is said so emphatically, as is often 
presented to us in the scripture, that there are parallel terms. I mean, so much of the Bible, if you notice, particularly the poetic sections, are all done in these parallel statements, which usually are done for reinforcement and explanation. And you have in Genesis 1.26 the statement, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. And those two words play throughout this narrative and looking back to this narrative later in, in the Bible. Uh, image and likeness. Okay, so we need to figure this out. Let her see. Image and likeness. Here's my proposition, and I'll I'll try to prove it to you here. I, I, I don't make any theological distinction here between these two words, image and likeness. My concern is that you understand, if you do read any church history, that it's easy for people in church history to make a lot, particularly in Latin cultures, and by that I mean the Western church early on in church history, to make a lot of distinctions without a real sensitivity to Near Eastern parallelism and the things that parallelism does in Hebrew literature. So often we found, especially in the early church when it moved to the West, that we had a lot of folks make a big distinction between likeness and image, that these meant two different things. I just want to look at these two words real briefly, and I'll just give you one reference, but you could do a, a word study of these on your Logos Bible software or even on the internet. Teslam, this Hebrew word that is translated image. If you looked this up and looked at every reference to it, you would find the definition would be similar to. It bears some semblance from one thing to the next. Ezekiel 23, in a very matter-of-fact description and, and enlistment of this word, it speaks of, of Israel seeing, this is a negative at the time, he actually calls them you know, spiritual prostitutes at this point, but he says, they saw, the nation personified as a woman, saw men portrayed on the wall and the images, there's the word, of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, in bright red, in their army apparel. The paint, a painting. Right is not the the real thing, but it's a it's a semblance, it's, it's a depiction of it, and and that's how it's often used in a very common sense. Although it's hard to really group these two words into clear categories, because in my my thinking is these are used as synonyms throughout the Old Testament. Demuth is the other word that's translated likeness, image and likeness, similar to. You're certainly going to find that, but you're going to find this word used more often in terms of. Uh, abstract references. For instance, here's an example from Psalm 58, verses 3 and 4. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. They, they're speaking lies. They have venom. They really don't have venom. Like the venom of a serpent. This is almost like uh, an illustrative or par parabolic reference. But there's a semblance. There's a similarity. But it's this for that in a way that, you know, there's some kind of correspondence. But it's more of a, an abstract correspondence. If you look for this distinction, which is very subtle, and you try to build theology on it, as some people have done in the past and some people do today, I, I think you'll come to some wrong conclusions. They are used interchangeably, I can tell you that, throughout the Old Testament. And I just say that because, not that I want to get into all the opposing views, but you'll run into perhaps people that will say, well, the image of God really means two different things. You may talk to your Mormon friends that'll have the, that view. And let's think through that. Theory number one, speaking of the Mormons, this is a bodily image. And because it's alive and well in America, in terms of God having a, a visage, an, an image, a, an actual you know, corporal physical reality, that's probably good for us to address it. It was certainly something that was articulated in the early theologies 
of the early church, which again, if you're getting all your authority from church history, I think you're in trouble. But anyway, a bodily image. You talk to Mormons. Mormons believe, as many have suggested to one degree or another, that God has a form, a form that looks like our form, and that's what it means that he was made, that we are made in his image. The problem with that, and I could build a long, drawn-out case for this, but let me make it as simple as I can. You know this, I trust, John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is described as spirit. In essence, he is spirit. That's the passage, woman at the well. Jesus says he's looking for worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. But the idea is he's spirit. And that was because we're doing away with the temple on Mount Gerizim. We're doing away with the temple in Jerusalem. And God's, you know, he's making a point about who God is. You can look elsewhere in the Bible. It's everywhere, right? God dwells in an approachable light. You know, no man has seen God or can see God. All the manifestations of God or the descriptions of God that's, that present him in, in physical terms. Clearly, when we talk just about directly what God is, he's, he's spirit. And whenever spirit is described in any detail, like it is in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, it couldn't be more clear that spirit is not physical. There's no physical component to something that's spirit. See my hands, Jesus says, this is after the resurrection. They're afraid he's, he's, he's a spirit, a vision, a ghost. See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So we could build a larger case for that, but I hope it's not hard for you to see that those that would recommend to you that when you look in the mirror, you see something that kind of resembles God if God were to show up. Now, clearly, we believe in the incarnation and Jesus Christ showed up and I don't looks like got two ears, a nose, eyebrows, teeth, a chin, you know, elbows. He's got toenails. That, of course, you could say, well, sure, God, as he says to his disciples, is is spirit. But if you've seen me, you've seen the father. We must not be talking about a visual image of something physical because the Bible's clear that God is spirit. So what are we dealing with? To, to use a word that has been coined throughout discussions of what this means. Let me introduce the word. We're talking about personhood. We clearly can't be talking about the physical aspects of God. We've got to be talking about whatever it means to speak of someone as a person. And by that, if you look at the context of what's going on there, it's certainly different than trees and rocks because it's animated, like animals are animated. They're alive. They move. They can make noises. They breathe. Whatever animated means, not in a physical sense, but as it relates to personhood, now I'm starting to get some sense of what it means that I'm made in God's image. To be made in God's image is more than just being animated and alive. It's having the ability to reflexively and rationally, intellectually think, to be able to cogitate, to be able to process thoughts in my mind that would come out in whatever it might be. And we'll get to some of those in a minute. Could be speech, could be creativity. Um, Elsewhere we find, though we don't see it in Genesis chapter 1, but we see it by Genesis chapter 6, we've got all these chapters between 1 and 6 about people feeling all kinds of feelings, whether it's Adam or Eve or Cain, Abel. We've got lots of emotions being displayed, and then God comes in in Genesis 6 and says, I am grieved in my heart. And the idea of being pained in my heart, I'm having an emotional feeling about the sin on the planet. This is just prior to the flood. And of course, we see the correspondence. It's very different than just having something have animation or life. It goes beyond that. Volition, the ability to make rational decisions, to prompt, to plan, to strategize. 
to be able to have thoughts express themselves in a purpose, in a sequential set of steps that accomplish a, a greater purpose, a decision maker, a volitional being, a relational and social being, a being that is not just flocking like an animal might flock together, but having the kind of concern for self-disclosure and the acquisition of knowledge of other human beings. You say, well, how can God be relational and social? He was all by himself until he created Adam and Eve or Michael and Lucifer, right? No, of course not. That's the amazing thing about the triune God that we discover in the Bible is that he exists as some eternal fellowship, father, son, and spirit without any need for a bigger party than that, if you will. We've got a ever-existing, immutable fellowship, a social God who's able to have relationship in the triunity of his makeup. Moral and ethical. This goes a bit further. We'll see these distinctions in passages like Psalm 32 when you get the description of animals in contrast to human beings not having that ability to feel that grief and that guilt not because of something that hurt or not because of something that, that you know, was caught or exposed, but something that we just know through a conscience was wrong before God and his plan. To have a conscience, to be moral, to have a sense of ethics, to feel that sense of shame and guilt over a decision that didn't just destroy, but one that hurt a relationship. Of course, in context, we have so much talk about dominion and jurisdiction. This is yours, this earth, subdue it, these plants, these animals, be in charge of it, oversee it. I'm giving these to you to, for your sovereignty, all of this delegated sovereignty and all this delegated jurisdiction and all this limited dominion, but it's a dominion that you have just like God has dominion. And even that idea of subduing the world, creating that element that's going to produce something that will be much like we had described in the first 25 verses of the Bible, and that is God creating, giving us a pattern of creating six days a week, producing something, creating something, standing back and saying that was good. I mean, if there's anything that distinguishes us from the rest of God's creation, it would be that we're animated, we have intellect, emotion, and will. We're relational, moral, ethical. We have dominion and sovereignty over things. We create and produce and even produce things just for the pleasure of standing back and saying, it was good. That's really good. Art. I mean, you don't see a lot of art shows among the animals, right? There's no museums. Uh, the dolphins apparently are really smart, but they don't sell their art on eBay, I've noticed. That's a list, again, for the sake of time, I'm going to throw out in just the little commentary that I gave you. Hope with, that with your knowledge of the Bible up to this point in your Christian life, those things connect not only with what you know and experience as a human being, but what you see in the Bible about the God of the Bible, a God who's alive, a God who thinks, a God who reasons, a God who's feeling emotions, a God who makes decisions and plans, a God who seeks relationship, a God who cares about ethics, a God who has sovereignty and dominion, and a God who creates and even sometimes creates just for the sake of beauty and enjoyment and pleasure. All right, let's keep moving. This is important, the implications of this. Letter E, we need to think through the effects of the fall on the image of God. And we're going to talk a lot more about the fall and its effect on a lot of things. But tonight I just want to think about, okay, all those things you said, I think about life here on earth and what we experience as human beings now. And the picture of God, if you have a really good understanding of the Bible, wow, it just seems like the chasm between God and his image in, in, in the pages of Scripture and God's image in my life or my neighbor's life or my coworker. It seems like there's a big gap between those two. Well... 
as I like to say, there's the idea of God's image being damaged, certainly is damaged, but it's not destroyed. There's a lot of things you can say about, I mean, even if you're thinking in theological terms, like words like total depravity, you can use that word if you want. It it really does not in, in any way destroy the image of God. And I'll prove that to you in a second. There's so much about that. To use Ryrie's phrase, professor there at Dallas, he liked to say, the image of God is defaced, but it's not erased. That's another way to say it. That's his phrase, not mine. But the idea of being damaged, not destroyed, defaced, but not erased, that's what we need to affirm because so much of the Bible and the ethic of the Bible related to how you deal with people is going to be predicated or founded on the fact that the image of God still exists albeit defaced and damaged in people's lives, even if they're unregenerate and unredeemed, even if they're your enemy. So we know it's not gone. Let me give you some words here that are without distinction. In other words, if we're talking about mankind in general, this is a very familiar psalm. Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the psalmist says, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars. I mean, and without TV and without a lot of city lights, I mean, you can imagine, it's like being out camping all the time. You see the, the, the magnitude of nature, And he says, when I think of all that, I think, what is man, human beings, that you're mindful of him, speaking in the singular here, mankind, and the son of man. I mean, here we are, we're generations from the first man, and it's getting worse, not better in terms of who we are. And he says that you would care for him. Look at all the sin and history of mankind, the fallenness that's displayed itself in sin and murder and rape and pillaging people and wars. Why would you care? Yet, you've made him, here's his worth, a little lower than, now here's how the ESV translates it, heavenly beings. Now, if you've ever dealt with this passage, and maybe in your reference Bible, or maybe just the ESV, you'll find in the margin there, this is the Hebrew word Elohim. And the reason I think the translators here translated heavenly beings is it's been a debate. Elohim, if you know, is the word that's often translated, usually translated uh, God, usually translated with a capital G. Now, the problem with God is he's so majestic and so transcendent and so great that he is described, one of the nouns for him, Elohim, is described, describing God or depicting God, but the word itself is plural, which is a little confusing, plural. Anytime you see a Hebrew word transliterated with an I-M at the end of it, Elohim, cherubim, I-M at the end, that's plural. So when you say Elohim, that can be capital G, God, because he's so great he's not contained in a singular Right? We call that a majestic plural in Hebrew grammar. Or you could be talking about small g, plural s, gods. The idols are called gods. The things that people trust in are called the gods. Even the angels are called the gods. So here the translation is heavenly beings. And that goes way back to before the time of Christ. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in the wake of Alexander the Great before the time of Christ, a couple centuries before Christ, it was translated into Greek. Now, these 70 scholars that worked on this took every passage and they were caring about the true translation and, of this text. And so they're very careful about moving Hebrew words into Greek words. And in this text, it was not translated theos or theai, it wasn't translated in a plural, it wasn't gods and it wasn't God, they translated this angelos. Angelos, you know, because it's transliterated into English, is the word angels. So what the psalmist is referring to, we don't know, but all we know is that it's something about something greater than us, whether it's the angelic court, whether it's some sense of, of God himself, 
But here, just a little bit lower than something so beyond human, something supernatural, that's how you've created us and you've crowned us. Here's two words usually given to God. All the glory, all the honor, all the riches and power go to God. Well, here, God has endowed human beings with glory and honor. Now, these aren't redeemed people. These aren't Christian people. These aren't the, you know, the priests of Israel. This is just a description of mankind. You know that from the singular there in verse 4. What is the son of man that you cared for him, mankind? You've given him, now we're back to Genesis chapter 1, dominion over all the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet. He's supposed to be in charge of things down here. All the sheep, all the oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea, he's in charge down here. He's at the pinnacle of creation. He's not the largest. He's not the strongest. He's not the fastest. He can't fly, but he's supposed to be, and he is, endowed with such glory and honor that he's just a little bit lower than the gods or the angelic beings or perhaps God himself. Big statement about mankind even after the fall. You can go throughout the Bible and find those things. But let's talk implications because that's more practical and it means more for us when we think through what this means. Now, the world doesn't think that human beings are created in the image of God. Most people are naturalists. Even if they believe in God, they believe that we got here through accidents and we're nothing more than animals that have evolved to a place where we can think and create art and do these things that we we do. So we're kind of at the top of the heap in the same spectrum. The Bible would say we're in a whole different plane. We're in a whole different category as being made in God's image. If that's true, and I don't see myself really as a part of some kind of cyclical or linear evolving of humanity. I'm really a special creation of God, specially and uniquely reflecting the character of God, the ontological character of God, having intellect, emotion, will, dominion, all those things we talked about. What are the implications? Well, let me just say this, as arrogant as it sounds. I mean, even we saw it in Psalm 8. People come first. They come first before everything. They are at the top of what it means in the physical world in terms of honor and glory. There's nothing bigger unless you go beyond the natural. You got to go to the supernatural, the Elohim of Psalm 8, to one-up man. And by that, I mean mankind, human beings, people come first. I thought it would be fun to go to the Earth First journal for a few quotes about what I just think is a logical progression of what most people believe and yet... They haven't gotten this far in thinking it through. The first Earth Journal, you might realize, is a naturalist, eco, they like to call themselves eco-philosophers. They're people that say things like this and write things like this. The extinction of the human species may not only be inevitable, might be a good thing. Tell me why. Phasing out the human race will solve every problem on Earth, social and environmental. This is a legitimate printed journal for environmentalists. Well, it'll solve every problem we have, that's for sure. But see, we think in terms of people first, our problem, well, duh, that sounds like absurdity. But see, if you think you're a part of Mother Earth and the global ecosystem, then to solve the problem and see the extinction of mankind, that really helps the whole. We're helping Mother. We're helping the planet. So to them, this is a perfectly logical statement. Dave Foreman is not as crazy as you may think. It's taking a philosophical view of reality and moving it on to its logical conclusion. Here's one of those eco-philosophers, Penti Licola, says this, everything we've developed over the last 100 years should be destroyed, should get rid of it all. Now, you want to talk about the classic tree hugger that you envision as the extreme environmentalist? Think that through. Now, we'll deal with aspects of this later, perhaps not tonight, 
But the idea of what it means to take this world and subdue it, it is God's plan that they're making, you know, iPhone 6 pluses. I mean, that, that's part of God's plan, to take the elements of the world, to orchestrate them, to put them into useful, workable things, products. This is the opposite of that. Another Earth First Journal article. He says, I expected that eradicating smallpox was wrong. It played, smallpox, an important part in balancing ecosystems. Now think, think this through. Because of uh, a Christian perspective, a worldview, if you will, that sees things like disease as inherently bad because it's killing people made in the image of God, even if you don't call it that, but important beings, like certainly at the top of even the food chain, if you want to think in terms of at least secular philosophy, then this should be eradicated. It's not how earth-first people think. Here's an Oxford grad, Kenneth Boulding. He writes, human happiness and human fertility is not as important as a wild and healthy planet. Some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. I, I just, the the self-defeating philosophy of, of these folks, it seems humorous to us, but it really is if we just see ourselves as something less than dolphins and fuzzy seals and stars, it is where we'll get. I mean, where do we get off thinking we're at the center of all this? That's how the secularist who takes his philosophy to the logical conclusion, that's where he goes. And I'm saying, well, because I do think I'm at the center of all this. We're human beings made in the image of God. Edward Abbey, just to get one of the most outrageous quotes I could find, which didn't take long, environmentalist. Edward says, I'd rather kill a human being than a snake. I'd rather kill a snake. I, just the idea of seeing this self-deprecating philosophy minimize human beings to less than a snake I, I just think th this is the antithesis of what the Bible would teach us. Now, of course, that's not what most of your uh, neighbors think, I suppose. But we've come a long way from where we used to be in at least adopting in broader culture the principles of what it means to think biblically about where we are in the universe. People come first, and I'm not ashamed to say that. It's something that we should clearly and obviously promote. And that would mean, too, when it comes to that, I should say this, by the way, about environmentalism. I preached a sermon on this. I remember and spoke at length about the idea of what it means. There is no, this doesn't give us license. Much like, because animals aren't made in the image of God, I have no right to be cruel to my beast, as the Bible says. And I have no right to destroy the planet either. I understand that. But see, when modern Christians get on the bandwagon of thinking like secular naturalists, they take this far too far, and they do it in the name of God. And they talk about soul care on the one hand and earth care on the other. And all I'm telling you is, fine, I'm not setting you know, forests on fire for fun. I get that. But i got to recognize that we've taken a secular mindset that doesn't view creation in its proper priority and we've taken it we've taken it too far but i'm all if you think i don't recycle or whatever i don't do it happily but i do it i do it so that i guess i'm trying to avoid i mean you're gonna come out as he's an animal hater and a destroying the earth kind of guy none of that's true practical priority of people i just want to tell you that we need to make this something that in the small scheduling prioritizing aspects of my life i need to make sure that in my life people always have priority we're reading in Ecclesiastes right now in our daily Bible reading. And you can see every time he turns a, th a corner and goes from one theme to the next, I mean, the ideas of where he's going, even when he deals with people, he speaks of using people for his own pleasure. But all the things he wants, whether it's a lot of money, whether it's lands or gardens or fields or knowledge, they really aren't about prioritizing people. 
Not that that's an end in itself. God is the ultimate concern for every human being created in the image of God. But I'm surrounded by people who are created in the image of God. And as I said, I think it was Sunday that the demonic work in the Gerasene demoniac leading him to the demons, here was the line, drove him into the desert. We talked about just taking that idea and saying isolationism, withdrawing, being someone who's alone and a loner. Those are, that's the agenda of the enemy. And when it comes to us looking at our lives, I hope you know that people are, are far more important than, than things. And in our day, it seems to be quite convoluted with our gadgets and our tech and all the rest. We say we're connecting with people while ignoring the people around us. And I'm not an old fogey. I just had a birthday. I'm 50 now. I know it's horrible. I, I mean, I'm all for technology. I'm just telling you that we need to make sure that we don't become the isolationists that don't realize that the people walking around us are far more important than any of the things we might want to entertain ourselves with. The practical priority of, of people. Just a comment on that. Number three, we ought to, because of the high value God places on people, whether you recognize the high value God places on people or not, you ought to have a fear instilled in your heart, a fear of God if you were to mess with people, even your enemies, even people you don't like, even non-Christians, because the image of God is still born in people that are not regenerate. And so it should be in our thinking that everyone I meet is an image bearer. Everyone I meet who I think is not as smart as me, who is not as accomplished as you, a person that's not as, as whatever, you know, they don't meet your criteria of what you think is the ideal person. They still bear the image of God, the Bible would say, and harm to them should be a, a source of fear. And the ultimate example of that, I suppose, and we'll deal with capital punishment down the road, but let me just quote the passage that starts this in terms of capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why, God? Why would that be? Why would you kill someone for killing someone? That seems like you're just, to use secular logic, just perpetuating violence and killing. And what good does it do to kill someone who's killed someone? You're just continuing to kill. That's awful. The rationale from God's perspective is that whole thing that happened in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. I made people in my image. Nothing else is that way. You don't get the capital punishment for killing an animal. You don't get capital punishment for killing a tree. You don't get capital punishment for, for polluting a pond. But you get capital punishment prescribed in Scripture for someone who kills a human being. The only stated reason in Genesis 9 is because that person is created in the image of God. It's as though you've assaulted God himself. Now, hopefully you're not plotting homicide tonight. But I'm sure James 3 verse 9 may be much more applicable to your life. With our tongues, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, speaking to Christians now. And with it, our tongues, we curse people. Now, here's the rationale why this is something that ought not to be. People who are made in the likeness of God. There's the interchangeable synonym, by the way, at least translated into English. The idea, because there's Greek parallels to the two Hebrew words. So the idea of the likeness of God being resident in people that you don't like, that irritate you, that you want to complain about, the Bible just says you need to recognize the offense. The reason God sees that as, as wrong and offensive and egregious is because they're made in my image. That's hard for us to see. I mean, we can see it maybe in someone we respect who's, you know, you know dressed well and smart and all that. But listen, the, 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 the skateboarder with his hat on backwards who's irritating you because he's skating in front of your business or whatever. The Bible says that there's an image bearer. It doesn't give them a pass to be evil. But it does let us, I hope, have a little bit of fear when we attack, when we go after them, when we tear them down. Harming people, 
we need to recognize should instill fear in the rationale in the Bible is because they're made in the image of God. Whether it's our words or our knife, that's a huge implication. Number four, my sanctification. Well, you keep talking about there's no distinction really between Christians and non-Christians. Well, let me make just the point that there is a distinction. (laughs) There's always a priority in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, as it relates to what regeneration does. Regeneration, generation, to make, Genesis, generation. Regeneration, to remake, to reborn, you know, to, to rebirth someone, to be born again. Someone who's born again has in their life, according to the Bible, this restored image of God. And that becomes something that now is my goal because it's progressive. Sanctification, usually as we use it just as a standalone word, is assumed to be, with this word, this adjective, to be progressive sanctification. We're describing a process. And the process is that trying to get back to and restore the image of God. What kind of thinking would he have? What kind of emotions would he share right now? What kind of decisions and planning and strategy would he make? What kind of even things would he do that he would stand back and say, that's a good product. That's well done. Those are the kinds of things I'm shooting for in my sanctification. Of course, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is held up as the perfect template for us because the people in the first century got to experience him and see him and listen to him teach. And in Romans, in the wake of all that, verse 29, it says, those he foreknew, that is, foreloved ahead of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's a process of conforming them to be more like Christ. And we say that all the time, to be Christ-like. That's the goal. And that's something that my sanctification is all about because as a Christian... There is that new goal and that new possibility, as it's put in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. When one turns to the Lord, there's the idea. I think it's a strepho, the word there, uh, like metanoia, to, to repent, to turn to the Lord. That veil is removed because the context there is talking about how Satan is one who blinds. He'll make that very clear in the next chapter. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I'm no longer blinded here. Don't have the, the blinders on. And with all, with unveiled faces, because it was the parallel of Moses who had that veil over his face, now it's gone. We can now behold the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image. As you stare at Christ, as you see who he is, as you study him, you stare into that image, you get that idea, you, inf- you, you now are informed of Christ, and that transforms you into the same image from one degree of glory. You look more like Christ this year, I hope, than you did five years ago. You're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this all comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, and that is his goal in your sanctification, to be more like that original creation before the fall. Colossians 3, 5. This is a great text. Talking about all the things that came after the fall. We got to wage war against that. Whatever's earthly in us, and it lists that long list there. I just gave you two. Sexual immorality and impurity. Ellipsis. Goes on. On account of all these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked, that's Paul's favorite word, peripateo, to talk about your pattern of life, when you were living in them. Those were your habits. But now you must put them all away. And he lists anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, all those things. Seeing that you have put off the old self, that's your regeneration, with its practices, and you put on the new self. Now, I'm somebody new in Christ. What does that mean? Well, I have a whole new inner set of desires. I'm a whole new person, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And then it says, here's the process of sanctification, the restoration of God's image, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What's its? My new self. I now 
as a regenerate, born-again person, have a new core heart, as the Bible says in Jeremiah, heart of stone taken out, heart of flesh put in, and now the goal is I need the knowledge. I need the teaching. I need more of the word. I need to be like Peter says, that baby feeding on the, the milk of the word, and then I'm becoming more and more. Second Corinthians 3 says, from one degree to the next, I'm being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That's the process. My sanctification is a restoration of God's image, not his physical image, but his likeness. Now flip the page over if you would, and let's talk a little bit about Genesis 2.27. Genesis 2.27, this, what we often call recapitulation. You had Genesis 1 open earlier. Look across the page to 2.7. The recapitulation or the retelling of the story You'll see it again in chapter 5, but kind of this re-going into another layer of information about the creation account. Here he says, being more specific about the creation of man, Then the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground. That's how he got him, out of the dirt. The same material in the dirt, same material that makes up the minerals and stuff in your body. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So I want to talk about this for the remainder of our time. Humans created with two facets. And the two facets in this text, just to use the words in the text, are dust and breath, dust and breath. The composite of man in this text is described as being made from the dust and then having injected into him something God here calls breath. And then he becomes a living creature. Now that's unique. It's a unique making of the person, as it was described in chapter 1, verse 26, in the image of God. Now here is more description of how that takes place. You've heard me say this many times if you've sat under my teaching. We talk about the material and the immaterial part. The dust is the material. The breath is the immaterial part. And we're not talking about the air that moves through your lungs, but something that God is describing here that makes someone alive. It's what I often call from the platform. I know every illustration breaks down at some point, but I like to talk about hardware and software. You have a material part, dust to the earth, the minerals in your body, the textures of your body, the, the fibers of your body, and then there's the software, which I dealt with a little bit on Sunday when you talk about thinking about proving, at least in quick conversation from the pulpit, proving the fact that we are more than just material. We're software too. I mean, death is such a vivid expression of that, that we're more than just the material cells of a body. And we're more than just a little electricity running on top of those cells. We are someone besides that. Software running on hardware, immaterial, indwelling material. You want to be real simple about it. We are body and we're spirit. And just to think in those terms before we set up a couple of views here on this, I want to think through what it means when the Bible continually says, and I talked about it on Sunday as my opening illustration, as morbid as it was, that when the spirit is gone, then death takes place. Take a look at this illustration. It was such common knowledge. It was the foundation for James talking about how can you say you're a Christian without any changed life? You say you have faith without works. Remember this passage. Just as the body, he says, apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You put these two together and you have a living being. That's what took place in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Which is also what took place in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. But the recapitulation or the retelling of the story in chapter 2, we get more detail, go another layer deep, and we learn that out of the dirt he was made, material, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now he is a living creature. If you separate those two, you're dead. 
Okay, well, that makes sense. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is dying. He's being stoned to death. People throwing rocks at him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, receive my spirit. Now, something very clear about the Bible, which again, the only reason I opened with an illustration on the weekend about, you know, trying to think about spirit entities outside of material bodies and to talk about death is because we're losing this mentality as we get more and more Discovery Channel talk about us just being physical beings. We're just naturalists. We're just material. We just happen to be animated because, you know, we've got a little electricity running over our, our, our cells. But if you recognize from beginning to end in the Bible, you only have a person when you have spirit and body. You have that as a human being, a living creature here on planet Earth. The separation of those is death. And it'd be good for us just to kind of state what is so obvious in the Bible and make sure we get that clearly in our minds. Now, thinking of those two facets, human beings with two facets. Let's think through our material bodies just a little bit here. Many have taught that the body is bad and the spirit is good. Many have taught that the body is the evil thing and the spirit is the righteous thing. The body is the thing that is in some way fallen and the spirit is the thing that is kind of innocent and unfallen. Now, this has implications in all kinds of things. And I jotted down Gnosticism, for instance. They were classic at this to think about the idea that body was bad and spirit was good. I say various antinomian groups. Antinomian groups didn't believe that you had to keep the rules, and yet they claim to be righteous. How does that work? Because the sin that is done is sin done in the body. And when sin is done in the body, God doesn't care about the body. The body is fallen. He's already written it off. There's nothing to do with that in God's concern. He's just concerned about your spirit. Docetism, which was a part of Gnosticism and other groups, basically the same thing. The idea of the separation of body and spirit Body is bad, spirit is good. They believe that Christ, for instance, Docetism believed that, the, that Christ never came in the flesh. He was a phantom. He, was, he appeared to be a man, but he wasn't man because the cells are bad and bones are bad and hair follicles are bad. All of that has fallen under the domain of the enemy. God would never put on those things because those things are just in essence and in themselves, they're evil. So God can't be incarnate. See, that's our theological word, and we missed the point because really God just showed up but appeared to be something he wasn't, a phantom, docetism would teach. That's why the seeds of this kind of heresy was debated, I should say fought and defended. Right doctrine, orthodoxy was defended in passages like this, 1 John 4, 2. Apparently there were people in the first century, we can assume based on statements like this, who were denying that Christ had come in the flesh. Now they knew Christ came, but Christ as a principle came, Christ as, a, as an entity came, but he didn't exist in a human body. And 1 John verse, chapter 4, verse 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, what's that kind of doctrinal? I mean, that's not a concern for most people today. Are you a heretic? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Christ come in the flesh? Who's going to say no to that if they name the name of Christ? Well, even in the first century, they were starting to do that. And it was based on the philosophy that went back, Plato and Aristotle, about, mostly Aristotle, about issues of material is bad, spiritual is good. I want you to turn to this one, if you would, because I want you to write in your Bibles, if you have a printed Bible, or put a note if you're on your iPad or your computer in the actual text. And I didn't check every, I've done this before, but this week I did not check. And today I did not check to see every translation that's out there being used. But I know what the ESV says, obviously, because I have it printed here in front of me. I don't have it printed, I have it up on the screen. But I'm going to contest something that editors had to make a decision on. 
If you've studied 1 Corinthians, you know that the book is filled with Paul's responses to their questions. Sometimes it's clear about now concerning the things you've written. Other times it's not. It's not clear, but it's clear that he's quoting something and then he refutes it. So Paul's got all these things he wants to say to the Corinthians to correct their bad thinking. And a lot of it is exhibit one. This is the quote that you say. This is an example of that. If you've ever heard 1 Corinthians 6 taught, look at verse number 12. You'll see this in quotations. All things are lawful for me, quote unquote, but not all things are helpful. Now, why is not all things are helpful outside the quotes? Because Paul's taking that statement and saying, listen, I know you guys say all things are lawful, but you need to realize to kind of help modify that, you need to realize, well, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. He quotes it again. That's the things you guys are saying, but I will not be dominated by anything. So you need to be look at enslavement to sin and that's not good. Now you got another one, verse 13 in quotation marks. Do you not? Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now the ESV puts the quotation end right there, does it not? I want to contest that. I don't think that's where the quote ends. They are used to, at least in the immediate context, these very pithy and short, very terse quotations. All things are lawful for me, quote unquote. Oh, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. That's what you're saying. Hey, not going to be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, a lot of people, based on the translation here, which is not a translation, it's a guess that the editors have to make. They say Paul's answer is, oh, God will destroy both one and the other because the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. All I'm saying is spend half an hour just rereading and reading and rereading and reading and thinking of other passages and looking at the rest of scripture and thinking about the logic of this. And I think you're going to get to the place of saying, I don't understand how this is set up with Paul saying, God will destroy both one and the other. What's that? Food in the stomach. He's going to do away with them. Because then all of a sudden he's saying the body's not meant for sexual immorality. Well, if you know anything about the docetism of the early church and the early seeds of the Gnostics that are starting to grow up in first century, that was their very reason. That was their rationale for participating in sexual immorality because God's going to destroy them. It doesn't matter to God. The quotation needs to be moved, in my opinion, to after the period where it says God will destroy both one and the other. That's what they were saying. They were saying this, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God's going to destroy both one and the other, quote, unquote. Therefore, they would say, conclusion, the body's meant for sexual immorality, just like the stomach for food, food for stomach. They go together. Sexual immorality. Hey, that's just how it works. That one goes with the other. That he then turns around and says, no, it's not that way. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But the body is meant for the Lord. Oh, just before he destroys it? No, no, no. And the Lord for the body. Well, but isn't he going to destroy it? Answer, verse 14. No, God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. What does that mean? He's going to redeem the body. He's going to resurrect the body. Do you see that this is the opposite here of what that phrase seems to mean there if it's Paul's phrase and not the Corinthian phrase that God's going to destroy both one and the other? In other words, do we minimize the body If you do, you'll find the argumentation of the early antinomians was, doesn't matter to God. So I'm saying, scratch out the quotation mark, end quote, after food, and put one there after the word other. I mean, if you want to do your own study on this before you do it, I think this is a legitimate, it's the only real logical way to understand and exegete this text, in my mind. 
Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God's going to destroy them both. Just like they're saying, all things are lawful for me. He's saying, no, not all things are helpful. Don't be dominated by anything. Body is not meant for sexual immorality. Your body is meant for the Lord because it's important. Oh, but it's going to die. No, no, no. God raised the Lord's body, and he's going to raise your body. Let me just ask this question, by the way. If this is Paul, verse 13, God will destroy both one and the other. As some translations put it, destroy means do away with. Is he going to do away with the stomach and food? Have you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22? There's food, there's stomachs, there's people eating, there's trees that they got fruit on them. I, I don't understand. Well, that's because this is not a true statement. Well, what, well, this body. Well, he quickly says the body is going to be redeemed and resurrected. It's going to be raised up. Many have taught the body is bad and the spirit is good. And I even think you see the seeds of it not only in 1 John 4 regarding Christ, but in 1 Corinthians 6, the early antinomians, the Gnostic thinking. Therefore, we need to rethink that altogether. Is that, the, is that the truth? Well, as Paul says in that passage, Christ's body was resurrected. How important was the body to Christ? Well, 1 John 4 says it was real. It's a real body. He came in the flesh. And when he was done with his work, he didn't leave the body in the grave. He reconstituted it, reanimated it, and he came out. John chapter 20 it makes such a great point that the linen shroud, the death mask was all right there. Even, I love the way it's put, it was folded up sitting there inside the empty tomb. Why? Because the body was gone and the body was now alive. And the body was important. As 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, he raised Christ from the dead. He is the first fruits of all those that are going to fall asleep. Although that's the euphemism for death. How God raised Christ from the dead is how he's going to raise us from the dead. That gives me some sanctity to the body. That, that raises and elevates my view of the body. That, in my mind, reminds me that the body is important to God. It's important to God it's something that is sanctified by the presence of the spirit in my own life. And by that, I mean my spirit, just to start at the baseline. All you got to do is just look throughout the scripture. What does the Bible say about the body? Does it speak in, in terms of, well, God's going to do away with it. Not important. No, just the opposite. When the, when the Bible speaks of the body, the human body, it says things like this. Psalm 139, 13 through 15, you formed my inner inward parts You knit together my stomach. You cared about it. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know this is post-fall. I get it. Even after the fall of mankind. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You can read the rest of the passage. It continues to go on to praise the work of God in, in the human body. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, in a reference regarding Christ and the church, I understand, which is illustrated by marriage and husbands and wives. It says, hey, in the same way, husbands, love your wives. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Speaking of yourself and your body, no one ever hated his own flesh unless you're crazy or demonized, but you nourish it and you cherish it. Just as Christ does the church. The baseline assumption is that's what you do with your body. And you should even use that as the base. It's like loving your wife. Loving your wife should be a picture of my uh, of Christ's love for the church. And a wife's submission to her husband and love for her husband should be like the church's submission and love for Christ. And here, underneath that, this third level illustration, the way I care for my own body, that's a template and an illustration of how I should love my wife. What's the idea here? It's something that God has made. It is wonderfully made. It is fearfully and wonderfully made. It is intended for us to take care of it, to nourish it, to build it up. It becomes a logical baseline for my own marriage. Take it a step further. Second Corinthians 7, 1. When I think about my life, we don't disregard the importance of the body or the function of the body. I think about the body, according to this passage. 
I've got promises, for instance, of intimacy with God. He'll be my father. I'll be his sons and daughters. That's how it ended in chapter 6. And if that's the case, if I would just separate myself from ungodly things, it says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Not just the things you think, not just the values you have, not just the problems in your own brain and attitude, but the things that you do with your body, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Our bodies are important to God. Our material bodies are sanctified and elevated and esteemed because of the presence of the spirit, my spirit, which you may put all the emphasis on the software, but the hardware is elevated and esteemed because of the software. Beyond that, if you're a Christian, our bodies are graced by God's presence. Talk about elevated. Talk about esteemed. Talk about your body being more important than it was when you were a non-Christian. Well, the Bible goes crazy on this thought. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? You're now part of God's thing here, God's organization, God's organism. Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them a mem- members of a prostitute? Never. Why would I commit sexual immorality... Because now my body is important to God. That's why, again, that that quote makes no sense. If they're thinking, well, God's going to do away with the body and the stomach and food and all that, that was their excuse for sexual immorality. He said, no, no, the body's important to God. God is a God who will redeem the body and and resurrect the body just like he did Christ's body. Your body's important. It's been graced and esteemed by the presence of the Spirit. Two verses later, three verses later, four verses later, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? How important was the building of the Old Testament, the temple that Solomon built? I mean, it was looked after, kept after, talked about nourished and cherished. There was a building that was nourished and cherished. You've got the spirit from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That was a big point of what Paul is trying to do with the Corinthians as he answered their questions. There's no way he's saying, in my mind, there's no way he's saying, hey, God's going to do away with all that. Stomach, food, and our bodies will be redeemed. Of course, they'll be redeemed. But one parallel that may be helpful to you as you write that down is Romans chapter 8, verses 21 through 24, talking about the material creation that's so messed up He says the creation itself is going to be set free from its bondage to corruption, just like your body is in bondage to corruption. It's aging, it's dying, it's getting older, it's wearing out, it's getting diseased. This list is going on too long, but you know that's all happening. And the Bible says in one day, just like the body's being corrupted, the world's being corrupted and it will obtain freedom from all that corruption. It will enter into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning, metaphorically, together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have first fruit of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. We want the culmination of our redemption and ultimately the end redemptive work will be the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What? Well, this, the demonstrative pronoun in this sentence, goes back to the final conclusion and consummation of our redemption, which is the redemption of our bodies. We're saved in that hope. Now, hope that is seen is not... Hope, right? If we already have it, who hopes for what he sees and what he already has? All I'm saying is the Bible puts a high premium on people made in the image of God. And those people are software encased in hardware. And there's probably more unity there in that than even my illustration represents. But the idea of then seeing the body is much more important and valued. That is a part of the theology of the Bible. If I had time, I'd talk again about burial and creation. Had someone in for counseling this week, they're dying, or last week, and they're talking to me about the disposal of the body. And I had to go through again the point that there's a reason there's burial in the Bible, because this container is sacred. Even after your death, there was, it was elevated and esteemed because of the presence of your spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So 
And I know people get all angry when I talk about cremation being not the biblical pattern, and there's good reason for that. But if you want to talk to me about that, we can talk about it another time. I think you've heard me talk about that, haven't you? Smile at me if you've heard me talk about that. Okay, you're scowling at me, some of you, because you don't like me talking about it. I get that, but it's important. Change your plans. Oh, it's expensive. It doesn't have to be. Costco sells, uh, you know, caskets now. Every mortician in California has to accept those. You can do this on the cheap, man. You can get buried at the Orange County. Uh, you, your taxes go to pay for that, that uh, on El Toro, the, uh, the county cemetery. You don't have to be b- buried in Pacific View. Well, I don't want to take up space. I'll drive you out to Blythe then. <laughs> we, we can get you buried out there. The rapture and the resurrection of the body will take place in Blythe just as well as it'll take place with an ocean view in Newport Beach. So... You know, don't talk about the ecosystem and we're running out of space. Look out the window when you're flying next time to New York and see there's a lot of room for cemeteries. Burial is one of the reasons. Our bodies are going to be redeemed, graced by the presence of God. There's sanctity in that even after your death. Now, I need to say that after, after I've said all that. Hopefully, looking at me, you can know, just like with animals. Hopefully, you know I'm not, I'm not an animal abuser, and I do recycle. And, and I want you to know my image notwithstanding. I try to take care of myself, but the bottom line is I'm not overdoing it. And that should be obvious and clear. Uh, I'm not overdoing it. But it can easily be overdone. The Bible tries to put some limits on that with statements like this. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. With all that said, you could go crazy and you buy your juicer and you're working out five times a day. Stop. Please stop all that. Okay. There's no need for that. Matter of fact, if you get overly into this, if you start telling me you're doing some 50-mile marathon or something, I'm going to challenge you with a passage like this and want those hours from you. I want those enlisted in godliness because bodily training, it's of some value. I get that. I don't want you, you know, to die at 30 because your your heart stops working because you sit on the couch and eat donuts all day. Don't do that. But godliness, by comparison, is of value in every way as it holds a promise not only for the present life. I get that health is good for the present life, but also for the life to come. And and if you start telling me that you're doing all these amazing physical things and you're so concerned and putting in all these hours and taking care of your body, I'm just going to say, fine, let's cut that down to maybe 20% of what you're doing. Give me the 80% of time. Let me enlist them in working for godliness in the church. and, and, And trust me on this. You'll look back at the end of your life and say that was a far better investment than continuing to work on this body that's going to end up in a box anyway, hopefully in a box anyway. So godliness is to be valued over washboard ads. Stop thinking about that. First Samuel 16, Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Remember this with David and and Jesse and the brothers, Samuel's there picking the next, don't look at his his appearance or the height of his stature. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees man, looks at the outward appearance. They're so stuck on that. But the Lord looks on the heart. Now, this is no license to not care about your body because I've just tried to preach about body care because the bottom line is the Bible says it's important. But it's easy to overdo, particularly in South Orange County. So stop being so obsessed with it. Stop trying to do the next marathon and the marathon after that. And I'm going to run to New York without stopping. All that's got to stop. It's got to stop. And I mean it. I'm serious. And you'll thank me for it in heaven, I assure you. First Peter 3, 3 and 4. Don't let your adorning be external. Adorning. Now, that's a word. That doesn't mean none of these things can be done. If you're here with braided hair, this doesn't mean that's wrong. It just means that as you say, here's how I want to be standing out. Don't let it be I want to stand out with my hair or my jewelry or, the, or my dresses and clothes. But let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit 
That's precious in God's sight. It's easy to overdo. It's easy to overdo in the first century, but the ladies going to church, it's certainly easy to do in the 21st century. Don't overdo it. And lastly, we read this yesterday or day before yesterday in our DBR. Remember, this is a great line. Poetic charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. In the end, it really is. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, what she does, and let her works praise her in the gates. See, that's, again, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Godliness, godliness, that's the priority. There is some value to it. I get that. And it should be something we do because we see that we're made in the image of God and the container that we have is housing the personality, the personhood that's in the image of God. But don't overdo it. Are we primarily three parts? Letter C. Are we primarily three parts? We call this trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. This comes primarily from two passages in the New Testament. First Thessalonians 5.23 the end of that letter, he says, Now may the peace, God of peace, rather himself, sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, soul and of spirit, and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, well, Those two passages, because they list spirit, soul, and body... Now, these are both New Testament, so they're both in Greek. Those words, suke, pneuma, and soma, those three Greek words, those words, because they're listed there, all of a sudden people say, well, then I guess we are primarily three parts. And the claim is that when we use the word soul, we're talking about an immaterial part of our lives, much like spirit, but the soul is earthly. It's the same kind of thing that the animals have. It's what makes me animated. In other words, that's what brings me to life. That's why I'm not a tree or a rock, even though they have life to them on a cellular or at least a you know, radioactive level. We're talking now about me being an animated person or animal. That's the earthly thing. But the claim is the spirit, well, that's the God-related thing. That's the God part of me. That has immortality. That's immortal. It's heavenly. This I have some problems with. Number one, it's certainly not the depiction of Genesis 1 that we've studied tonight. It's not that picture of being taken from the, the dust of the earth and breathing in you the breath of life. The picture we have at the initial description of man is material and immaterial. Two primary parts, software and hardware, body and spirit. That's the idea. Not to mention that other distinctions are unaccounted for. And by that I mean when we look at the immaterial part of who we are, we get passages like this in Mark 12:30. Hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Strength, you could even argue, is a immaterial thing that runs my muscles, my mind, the part of the way I'm thinking, my soul, whatever that is, and my spirit or my heart, right? Didn't even mention spirit here. Then I got, you know, I've got a hard time, as is often done in building a whole theology on the difference between soul and spirit. I got a hard time doing that with Mark 12:30. Now, I could do a lot on this, but I figured I'd be right about where I'm at, and that is out of time. But let me just say, as Kim, uh, and I missed an E there in his name, Riddlebarger says, uh, in, earlier in this journal article, he makes clear and makes the case, and it's true that most theologians throughout church history, at least in the main stream of Orthodox Christianity and evangelicalism after some of the early patriarchal periods, 
have all believed that we are not primarily three parts. We're primarily two parts. And he says, and here's what he says, with its roots in Plato's distinction between body and soul and Aristotle's further division of soul into animal and rational elements, the trichotomist notion of human nature as tripartite, three parts, is unmistakably Greek and pagan rather than Hebrew and biblical. And he goes on to quote Louis Burkhoff, very respected systematic theologian. I would agree with that. The idea of the trichotomy, once you try to build on it, a distinction between soul and spirit, animal, earthly, God-given, heavenly, God-relating. I think we've got lots of extraneous things that we're not going to find in the Bible to create such a structure. Therefore, let's ask the question, are we primarily two parts? Which, of course, is what I've been hinting at all night. That's called a dichotomy. I believe in the dichotomy of man, material and immaterial, body and spirit, hardware and software. Well, then what about the word soul? With little time left, let me just say the word soul is even shown up in the first verse we looked at in the second half of the outline, and that is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Now, of course, there's the two Hebrew words, spirit and soul, and the two Greek words, New Testament, spirit and soul. But in this text, this is Hebrew, of course, the Old Testament, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust. Clearly, that's the material part, dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath. That's the Hebrew word, the standard Hebrew word for spirit. He breathed in him the spirit of life. So he got life because he was spirit. And he became a living creature. That's the Hebrew word soul. So he got, he was material, he got spirit, and then he was a soul. Follow that thinking now. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. Those described people that came up there were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. It's like a ship. It's like the ark. It's like a captain saying to his mate, how many souls on board, sir? Right? That idea of the whole of the person is a fairly consistent use of the distinction between spirit and soul. Soul being the totality of someone, spirit being the immaterial part in distinction to the material part. First Peter 2.25, for you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Now, just on the argumentation I made in the book of 1 Corinthians, how concerned is God with my body? Very concerned. What does he think about my body? Temple of God. What does he want me to do with my body? Stay away from prostitutes. All of that is God's concern for my body as well as, of course, throughout 1 Corinthians, my spirit. Here in the text, he is the overseer and the shepherd of my life, my soul. Which, by the way, interestingly, I've said it that way. Matthew 6, 25 and many other passages in the New Testament, when the word soul is found in the text, because the context seems to call for it and it makes sense, so I'm not speaking like a 19th century captain of a ship, they translate it throughout the New Testament oftentimes as life. Here's the word for soul. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your literally soul. That's the word, translates life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, that's about my life. Those are things about my life that need to be attended to. Or about your body, what you will put on is not your soul more important than food and your body more than clothing. Now, people can try to make hard distinctions and contrasts between body and soul like body and spirit here, but we're talking, I think, as rightly translated, I believe, as your life, the totality of your life. This one may be stronger, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his, here's the literal word, soul, 
as a ransom for many. And all you got to do is look throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament regarding the giving of Christ. And just as important in the descriptions of this is his bodily crucifixion. And by his stripes on his body, you were healed. Certainly, he doesn't just give his spirit. See, this is not the immaterial part. I believe this is the totality. He gave all that he was. So if that is how I understand soul, even though I realize it has that sense of immaterial, I believe it's immaterial and more. Spirit is the immaterial part. Body is the material part. Soul is a description of the totality of who we are.